0: Thank you, Sue, for those texts. Ungrateful tenants. A farmer with five soil types and 50 rolling acres. Two persons using their abilities to expand their employers' holdings and one just sitting on their duff. Two sons, one says, Dad, I'll do what you say, but then he doesn't. And the other says, no, Dad, I'm not doing that. And then he does obey his dad. An employee whose huge debt is written off by his employer, and then he in turn arrests a friend of his because he could not repay a small amount owed to him. One lost sheep out of a hundred. One lost coin out of ten. And a lost piece of valuable jewelry. A father and two sons. One wasting the family heritage, spoiling it in more ways than one, and then repenting. The other home all the time with those benefits and yet resentful. An employer who pays his employees all the same wage no matter how long they've been with the corporation. What are these? All stories told by Jesus to illustrate this concept of God's kingdom. Or God's ways, or God's values, or God's ethic. And he rarely taught in any other way, which is kind of fitting because it's not just what he taught, but that it's, it's his method, which sometimes just leaves people scratching their heads. What in the world is he talking about? Now, there are numerous kingdom apps that we can download to kind of get a idea of how this concept of kingdom has been understood over the years and one of them of course is from the samuel text that sue read and here we find that david is the most unlikely unlikely son of jesse and he is the one that is anointed to be the king and king he was with geographically defined boundaries but not without struggle, not without resistance, not without battles with other nations, and not without battles with his own ego or in sense of entitlement. David's kingdom, if you download this app, you'll find out that David's, this app is, the kingdom is defined by regulations and requirements and protocol, all designed to ensure the national security of Israel. Its territory reaches as far south as the as the Gulf of Aqaba and the river of Egypt about forty-five miles southwest of Gaza, it stretched at its height as far north as the Euphrates River, to the west to the shores of the Mediterranean Sea, and to the east to the Arabian Desert. And in this kingdom, David establishes a standing army, he levies taxes, he builds a labor force. He establishes a central worshiping center in Jerusalem. And given the authority to do all these, also leads to misuse and entitlement, as seen in the Bathsheba and Uriah account. And yet, this kingdom is not universally embraced by all within its boundaries. And it's defined by political power, geographical boundaries, as we've said, cultural customs, and by military might. But there are other kind of apps you can download when you want to find out about kingdoms and the idea of kingdom. Over the years, people have downloaded these ideas about God's kingdom. One is that it's temporary guidelines, and this is expressed in the Gospels and New Testament sometimes. The kingdom is simply guidelines until the world soon ends in Jesus' time, as some thought. Or you can download an app that says, that uh, Jesus, this kingdom is, is only present when Jesus was alive, not for later on. Or it's, it's a, a future, just to go the opposite. It's a future kind of existence or a phenomenon. Or it's identified with a particular culture or nation or people group. Or more so, sometimes it's identified as a, simply an inner spiritual experience. That's what God's kingdom is about or the institutional church, or it's simply, not just simply, but it's only heaven in the afterlife. But in contrast to all these apps we can download, Mark's gospel quotes Jesus describing yet another kind of kingdom in these two parables read by Sue. And we do note that these two parables do not fully illustrate the entirety of the kingdom, but they Illustrate two aspects which we go to today. God's kingdom, or God's ways, or God's ethic, God's operational mode. We see and mark these two parables of hope. The first is the parable of the seed, like someone scattering seed on 50 rolling acres maybe down at Fiddle Creek Dairy. And then the sower, the farmer, goes on with life, working and sleeping and rising each day. And it kind of insinuates that the farmer does not much do else afterwards, which we know is not true. But, but it kind of insinuates that the seed is planted and life goes on. And, and part of that is certainly true. There's only so much we can do. We can, spread, we can plant and we can take care of the plants. But what goes on in between planting and harvest isn't always visible, is rarely visible except over time we see the results. And so the farmer goes on, working and sleeping and rising each day, and meanwhile these seeds sprout, and they grow up and they head into grain without seemingly much effort from the sower. And while the focus appears to be here on the farmer's inactivity, which I find to be kind of an oxymoron, farmer and inactivity, just doesn't quite go together for me, but... The point is, the farmer doesn't have full control over this growth. The farmer is like a follower of Jesus who do not have complete assurance that all crops will turn out well, that all things will turn out well. Setbacks will happen. But the seed of faith has been planted, and the followers of Jesus are to be patient and trust in God's ways, that there is hope in something beyond the farmer's ability and disciple's ability, something out of our control. It reminds me of a conversation I had with my cousin's husband this week, and they have two young adult children, both married and both either in school, all four either in school or having uh, working at jobs, And they all have one thing in common, these four young adults. They don't go to church anywhere. They were raised in the church, made decisions for Christ, and they are not in church. They are not seemingly interested at all in church. And it bothers my cousin and husband a great deal. And then he said something to me which maybe indicates he has a seed of hope. The, the daughter of this couple married and is about to have a child. And they are wondering if this might bring them back to the church. Who knows? Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. But their situation reminds me of this parable. We plant. We watch the growth. And we surely tra- trust and hope for the harvest. But sometimes there's a long gap in between and we don't quite know how it's going to happen. It's kind of the theme that runs through Searching for Sunday book by Rachel Held Evans, who time and time again, as she speaks and as she writes, she tells her story of being away from the church for nine years, having been raised in a strict evangelical context, and as a teenager about age 18 or 19, she was all about, all about, getting into people's faces and asking about their faith and, and uh, just being real sure about everything. And then something happens. She begins to question some things, and, and she gets married and has children, and then there's this nine-year struggle and gap in their lives with no church family, so to speak. And what she finds up yearning for is a place to be real, a place to be able to be safe to express one's doubts, to express one's hope, and to have them both be able to be part of their church experience. The parable of the growing seed. The other one is the parable of the mustard seed. And I brought some seeds and I found out you can, you can hardly even hold one mustard seed. I think it's high nearly impossible. I mean, you, you can see it, right? It's just... I have three or four in my finger. but You just can hardly hold just one. But as the parable says, God's kingdom is about this small little insignificant seed, invisible almost to a T, almost to one's eyesight, becoming a very effective plant in the garden, not as the biggest tree, but as the biggest shrub in the garden. And having more than one purpose eventually as it grows. And who would have thought? Who would have thought that this little mustard seed would grow up into a shrub that would not only have a harvest of mustard seeds, but also be strong enough for birds to build their nests in the branches and to have shelter? A place for hope to grow. And for me, translated, this parable is about God's ways that can be found in even the tiniest of signs which can be easily overlooked or swept under the rug but whose results cannot be overlooked because they are evident and real. I'm reminded of the stories of two little girls, one in Philadelphia some years ago, driving through the streets with her parents and saw a homeless person in the winter, without a coat. Dad, Mom, there's no, they have no coat. We have to stop and get them one. So they did. And it became an effort that mushroomed throughout the city and throughout wider regions, an effort to house and clothe the homeless. I also think of this little girl who wrote to President Gorbachev of the USSR back in the 80s, I think, and she was so scared If you remember the Cold War fears that maybe lingered among people, and she was just old enough to kind of catch that fear of possible war between the U.S. and the USSR, and she wrote to President Gorbachev and asked him to, in essence, to to not fight against the U.S. or not not go to war. Now, I don't know. We can't prove what effect that has, but he did write back to her and he invited her and her family to come to Russia to visit. And who knows? I don't know the rest of the story. I'm not Paul Harvey. But who knows what was planted there? I can only imagine that in these, that little girl's heart and her parents, and maybe even President Gorbachev, there was something going on that came out of this little tiny seed of hope. Well, for you people in the MYF. These two parables are not on Don Crable's top 10 list of favorites. But nevertheless, they are upside down. They are upside down in that the human way, at least as myself as a human, I too often try to control the whole process. And here we are told to plant and let go. In the second parable, we see the smallest and the weakest has unique value for God's ways. And so it appears that God's kingdom is found in the activity of people. And yet whenever we take ourselves too seriously by making plans to bring in this kingdom, we are informed by this parable and by experience sometimes that it's not all about us. And when we are informed by our culture that it's the size that counts, the mustard seed gives us hope for the smallest of efforts. And Jesus is quite clear about God's kingdom. For in Mark's gospel, Mark writes about changed lives. He writes about repentance and turning around of people in the way they are going. He writes about restored lives and relationships. Social outcasts invited to eat with Jesus and his followers. A community of faith that gathers around Jesus to learn God's will. Cups of cold water given in Jesus' name. Children valued and welcomed into Jesus' circle. Good job, Jeannie, going with the flow and the call to worship with the cry of the child. Way to go. <laughs> Disciples of all eras learning that salvation is found in self-denial and sacrifice. And most clearly, I think we learned that this kingdom thought is not so much a residence after, di- after we die, but it's a place where God's ways are active and growing now and in the future. These signs of God's kingdom tell us that the kingdom is already here and is still being established. It's never quite finished until whatever end God has in mind. And we know our focus here, at least in this season, at East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church is the welfare of the city. And wherever you live... In the city or suburbs or countryside, pursuing God's ways is, a, is pursuing God's kingdom. Community meal testimonies. I've heard a number of testimonies from people who come to eat. And the longer I'm there, the more I get to know people. And several have continually told me, you can't starve in Lancaster. You just have to swallow your pride if you're hungry and walk and get meals. 21 meals a week are available. There is food here. But perhaps for myself, the most meaningful description of this kingdom is found in Luke 10, where the disciples are sent out two by two. And in this journey, they discovered that some people embrace their presence and some reject them. And the words that follow each account of acceptance or rejection is the same. Yet the kingdom of God is near. For me, that is very hopeful. That it's not just about me or my efforts. It's not about my success or failures. That does not define the presence of God's kingdom. It's much further beyond and bigger than me. So, Lord, may your kingdom come on earth. May your will be done on earth now, just as it is surely in heaven. Amen.